Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Getting in a College Coach Conversation. Now, this is really kind of a funky scenario for me because right now it's October. We're recording this on October 27th, and I've got all these essays from students in my box, and they're really anxious about these November 1st early action deadlines. But you're listening to the show on November 4th. So like that's not a concern to you at this point, uh, but it still is for me. So I'm going to try and channel my future self and really think about being past these deadlines as we work through today's conversation. Uh, And I congratulate you all on being through that November 1st deadline. If you're the parent of a senior, or if you yourself are a senior who has submitted those early college applications, Um, because things are just wild here uh, at the end of October, we are going to go ahead and do some listener questions. This is one of our favorite ways to, first of all, take take temperature of what you all want to know, uh, but also give us an opportunity to, to relax into some good content that, that feels like it's a little bit more in our wheelhouse. Uh, so joining us today, as always, Shannon, do you ever let anyone else come on and do never. Q&A? I, I fight for them. This is my favorite segment. I never give them up. I totally understand that. Like when I see that there's a listener Q and a and Sally's doing it or Beth is doing it, I'm like secretly very angry Um, because the reality is that like as hosts, we most often have to ask the questions, but the Q and a is like the one chance for us to answer the questions. And yeah, we all love to talk anyway. Shannon Vasconcelos is here uh, as she is for all Q and a questions. She's wonderful. You all know her. Uh, She's what are you're like a star of the show, like a, Obviously. Yeah. Like an, like an Andy Richter of getting in a college coach conversation. He's like <laughs> the, Andy Richter, the star of the show. No, he's like, like, so you've got Conan and then you've got Andy. I'm the right? sidekick, the sidekick, yeah. and, but I not like, like an, I like it. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, you know what? Let's make you the star. We're going to start with a question for you. Okay. Um, this is from Mylana from YouTube. Um, so she says, thank you for your tips on completing the FAFSA and the profiles. It's the, the free application for federal student aid and the CSS profile. And then here's a quick question for you. Are COVID-19 relief payments considered untaxed income? Here's a new question for you. COVID-19 relief payments. Totally new question for me. And I had to think about it for a while. <laughs> a lot of questions I've answered so many times, it just starts spilling out of my mouth, but I was like, Ooh, Good question, Mylana. Um, but the answer is no, they are not considered untaxed income. It gets a little into the, the tax weeds. I, I like getting into the financial aid weeds. The tax weeds, it, not my favorite subject, but mm-hmm. um, those COVID um, stimulus payments that folks got were considered actually an advanced payment on a tax credit from the future. Uh, more time travel. I feel like our, our radio show is time traveling. The tax credits were time traveling, yeah. but those um, those stimulus payments were just an advance, essentially on a future tax refund that you were owed. They are not considered income um, at all by the federal government. That would actually be kind of nasty if the the government gave you a whole bunch of money 
and then said, you know, we're going to take a quarter of it back in your taxes, and then we're going to take another quarter back in reduced financial aid eligibility. It doesn't count as income um, uh, for any thing. So you are good, Mylana. You don't have to report it on the FAFSA or CSS profile, essentially anywhere. Awesome. That's great. That's a super easy one. I'm sorry I didn't ask you a question where you could go on a little bit longer, Shannon. <laughs> I know. I, I do like to talk, but I think we got a few quick ones for me. We've got more. But I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure we're going to have some long ones for you. Um, and the first one comes in from Jennifer. And Jennifer says, my child is a freshman a few years out from the college process. I'm curious about how being test optional will play out over several years. Specifically, uh. Applicants are being counseled to submit their test scores if they're at or above the average for a school, but won't that push the average higher each year until effectively no one will have scores <laughs> high enough? Yeah, this is a great, this is a great question. Um, because I think what it gets at fundamentally, Shannon, is like, what are test scores actually doing for us? in the application process and in terms of assessing student readiness. So if we go back to, let's say 2019, 2018, uh, I don't want to relive 2020 again. So we're just going to go back for the sake of argument. Yeah. Like, so let's go back to 2019 schools had scores that marked their averages, right? So if you wanted to get into MIT or Stanford or wherever it was, they would say, okay, here are the students that got in and here are their average test scores. And so the assumption behind that is that is a good score for that school. Um, now, I probably should be talking more about schools that are a little bit less selective because their testing ranges are much broader. Um, and so let's say we have a range that's for the ACT 26 to 30 in that middle 50% and the average is 28. Now, the assumption would be, okay, those scores are good enough, are strong, uh, in the middle for school for students that are typically getting into that school. Now, as Jennifer points out, when students selectively submit their scores, you're going to find that all the students that are at the lower end of that range are going to say, you know, I'm not sure my scores are actually going to help me. So I'm going to keep them out of the puzzle. Yep. And I'm going to keep all the ones in the, the, the ones who are scoring in the middle and above are sending their scores. And what's happening is you can't see this if you're not watching on YouTube, but that that range is skewing higher it's moving more and more in one direction. I think it's also compressing somewhat because there are fewer students out of the total population that are submitting their scores. So a score that was test required in 2019, but is test optional in 2021 has a much smaller percentage of their applicant pool that's submitting their scores. It used to be hundred percent. Now it's not hundred percent could be as low as 35. I remember seeing a school that went test optional that had 35% of students submit scores. Now, of course, those 35% are going to tend to have stronger scores. There are some students who maybe don't understand test optional and what it means and are still sending scores that are at the lower end, but those students probably are not as well prepared for admission, might not be getting in. And so the admitted student profile, again, really focuses on students who've gotten in. So we're going to see that skew upward uh, pretty aggressively. Now, here's the question, though. It's like, what if a score of 28 was good? for a given school in 2019, why wouldn't a 28 be good for that same school in 2021 or 2022? So I don't know. So Shannon, I, I think it's like, it's kind of funky because it's like, is a score good because of where it lands in the applicant pool for a school or is a score 
good given what colleges are looking for from a student's academic readiness to be able to tackle the challenge of that institution. And I think what we're finding is that scores tend to be good based only on the range in the applicant pool and less as an objective measure of a student's readiness for academic work, which makes you wonder what's the point of scores altogether. <laughs> and as a self-fulfilling prophecy, well, kind of has this circular effect of making more and more schools go test optional, fewer and fewer students submitting their scores and the range getting more tightly compressed toward the high end of testers. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, Jennifer, I don't know what it's going to look like over the next couple of years, but I think you should just go and do some, some sleuthing right now because you can find common data sets for schools going back to 2019, 2018. Look at what those test ranges were in the late 2010s and look what those test ranges will be in the early 2020s and see if you're finding that there's a shift moving in one particular direction. Um, we are certainly seeing it just in terms of the admitted student profile for handfuls of schools that used to be 31 to 35 middle range that are now 33 to 36 is the middle range, um, which is just a really, really sharp difference. Um, so yeah, I guess like the literal question Jennifer asked is won't that push the average higher every year? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. One word answer. <laughs> um, and it, it pushes everybody towards the ceiling, right? Because the yeah. reality is that there is a maximum score, a 36 on an ACT, a 1600 on an SAT. You can't do better than that. And so maybe there's a world one day where only perfect testers are sending in their scores. Yeah. which effectively makes scoring meaningless irrelevant in the admission process. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know. I don't oh, know yeah, that's yeah. that. So I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. It is so hard. So if in your original example where the 28 is a good score for this school in 2019 or whenever in 2024, the average is going to be pushed up to a 30. Potentially. So you, yeah. You no longer send at a 28, that is no longer I, a good score. I think we've, we've got a question a little bit later about whether to choose to send scores or not. And I think like the question about what you do as an individual student in this context has a lot more attached to your overall profile, what you think about doing. Right. Right. But I do think that, um, the question of how schools are using standardized test scores as this happens, um, is a really interesting one. Um, and, and I don't know that schools have necessarily figured it out just yet. Yeah. Um, this is kind of a rising tide lifting all boats. Like everybody's bottom end of their middle 50% is shooting up a little bit because yeah. of the selectivity of, of students sending scores, except for universities in Florida, the university of Georgia, which are still requiring testing. And so one interesting case study, Shannon might be to go look at the numbers for those schools see whether those are changing at all to sort of disprove the hypothesis that students are just getting better at testing in general. Right. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. It's yeah. a great question. Um, <laughs> Jennifer like could be an admission future admission officer in training with a, with an insightful question <laughs> like that. That's pretty good. We should invite Jennifer on. Yeah. All the hard what do you, Jennifer, what other great what do you questions, think, Jennifer? <laughs> I think they're fabulous. All right. Let's go to another finance question. Yeah. Uh, this one's from Lisa also came through YouTube, which is really cool to see that we're getting so many questions on YouTube. And if you go to our channel and, and want to ask questions in that space, please feel free. We'll answer them on the show here. Um, do you need to report disability benefits on the FAFSA? I'm a disabled vet. All of my benefits are untaxable, $3,400 a month. Does that count? Great question. 
It is. And unfortunately, the, the answer for uh, Lisa is that those benefits do count. You do have to report those as income on the FAFSA. Um, it can get a little bit confusing. The FAFSA, the biggest number generally on a FAFSA for most folks is your adjusted gross income. They're mm -hmm. pulling much of the income information right off of your tax return. There's, there's a tool within the FAFSA called the IRS data retrieval tool where give or take, you're kind of pressing a button and it imports all of your information right off of your tax return. Um, this was a great invention when, when they added it to the FAFSA a few years ago. It just makes it so much simpler to complete the form. Yeah. Uh, so the majority of your income data is coming off of your tax return, um, but they do still currently in 2021 uh, ask about a number of forms of untaxed income that you might have had. And Lisa's situation, the disability payments, um, they are asked for as there's sort of a list of untaxed income. Do you have any of these forms of untaxed income? If so, report the amounts here. Disability benefits are one of them. Um, the most common one, I would say, is payments to your 401k plan. If you have uh. an employer-sponsored retirement plan, um, that is one that confuses folks quite a bit. If they've listened to our show at all, they or go to a financial aid presentation at school, we often talk about how you don't have to report your retirement accounts on the FAFSA. Those are invisible assets for financial aid purposes, but the amount of your income you contribute in that one tax year that they're looking at still counts as part of your income. They're not looking at the balance of your retirement accounts, but they are still looking at the amount you contributed. Uh, and if it gotcha. was a 401k, that money isn't taxed, but that's a form of untaxed income that you're reporting, like the disability benefits. If you receive child support, you're reporting that. Um, if you have any tax-exempt um, in interest income, like if you own municipal bonds, that would be another form of untaxed income. So there's a whole list of them. Disability benefits, unfortunately, Lisa, is on the list. So you do have to report those benefits uh, on the FAFSA. Currently, I will say sneak preview and regular listeners may have heard a little bit about this uh, in some past episodes. We have talked about um, the FAFSA simplification that is on its way, originally scheduled for the 23-24 school year. They bumped it back because they didn't feel like they had enough time to prepare to the 24-25 school year. Okay. And most of those forms of untaxed income that they are currently looking at are going away on future fasters. They're basically just pulling income off of a tax return. That's allowing them to reduce the number of questions on the FAFSA quite a bit, yeah. which is nice for people. Uh, and that untaxed income is essentially going away in the future. Unfortunately, for now, it is still looked at. So if Lisa has a younger student who's in middle school, it may be that, that when she fills out the FAFSA, that that income will be treated as not, as not a part of the formula. That's exactly right. And it, it sounds like there's no clear distinction. And whether income is taxable or untaxable does not affect as a category, whether it is included in the FAFSA formula. Um, there can be some forms of taxed income. There can be some forms of untaxed income. They're really looking at overall, what is your income at the moment? That's exactly right. Yes. Cool. Great. I'm listening today. That's great. Um, let's see, Shannon. We got two minutes. Should we take a break and then come back? Um, yeah. All right. Let's take a break. Sure. We've got more questions and we've got time and, you know, we run the show here. So um, we're going to take a break. We'll come back with more questions. Uh, so don't go away. 
we're looking forward to seeing you afterward. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We just had a great first segment with Shannon Vasconcelos and me, Ian Fisher, I don't think I even introduced myself in the first segment. Uh, anyway, you know who I am. Uh, and we're back again to do some more Q&A from all of you listeners. Now, again, if you ever have a question, you don't have to just be a listener. You can always send us an email, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Send us a question. It can be long and complicated. It can be brief and simple. At any rate, we are happy to answer questions that you have. And you can also post them on our YouTube channel. You can post them on Facebook. We're looking for what you want to know to fill up these segments. So please, please let us know what those questions are. Shannon, what's the next question for today's show? The next question comes in from Brian and he asks, we're ready to submit our application and are wondering if there are any final steps we need to take care of in order to make sure we're all ready to go. I know sometimes hitting that submit button is is scary. There's no turning back. That's right. And one of the things I notice in this question, I don't know if Brian meant to do this or not, but is the use of the we, right? And one of the things that we like to try and coach parents uh, away from is using we and instead really centering the student. So maybe Brian is the student. Brian, if you are the student, I, I'm ready to submit my application. And I'm wondering if there are any final steps I need to take care of. And if you are the parent, you can say, my son is getting ready to submit his application. I think just that little tweak of the language can be really helpful in empowering the student. Um, okay. I had a conversation with a student just yesterday about this exact question. He was like, okay, so I think I'm, I think I'm ready. Like, wh- what do we do? And uh, are, can I do like, it just felt like we had done so much work toward the application. There was so much invested in it that the idea that it was this simple click of a button yeah. to submit felt a little bit strange uh, to him. And, and so, you know, what I told him was you are ready. Like if you've, if you've taken the steps to check for typos, uh, you've made sure that you've answered all of the questions to the best of your ability. Um, you have gone through and just given that preview before you press submit, maybe have a parent look at it for their own eyes as well. Then you should be ready to go. The one thing that you, um, that not a lot of students think about after they press submit 
is that they are going to be given an ID from each university they apply to, where they can log into a portal to check the status of their application. So you can investigate whether your app has been received, whether letters of recommendation have arrived, whether you've got test scores submitted. So different things that are supporting documents for the application are coming from other people, from your counselor, from your teachers. And you'll just want to use that login to verify that those materials have arrived and are going to be included as a part of your app. Um, If there's anything that's outstanding that is needed in order to make a decision, you got to get on that and make sure that you get it to the schools, especially in this tight early action, early decision window where schools are reading and deciding applications in a period of about six to eight eight weeks. So that's really the one thing I think that a lot of students don't necessarily consider about what to do after they submit. But mostly you've got to just be confident. Like you've put in the work, you put in the effort, press that button, it's going to go off. And then you kind of have to sit back and wait and see what happens afterward. Uh, And of course, Shannon would say, and and make sure you hit those financial aid deadlines and look for scholarships in the meantime. So I I know you're going to say that as well. You took the words out of my mouth, Ian. That's right. (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to add. Don't forget about paying for it too. Okay. Right. (laughs) Great. Speaking of that, uh, let's, Angela asked this question also on YouTube, uh, a question she, her students submitted the application. Now she's looking at the CSS profile says, how do you suggest answering the question on the profile about your home's current value? I looked on Zillow. They estimated our home to be worth over $150,000 more than it was a year ago. And given how homes have sold in our area lately, I do not believe that is even close to accurate. Uh, so what do you think? Do we go to Zillow? Do we go to Redfin? Do we just Google our home price? What, how do we figure out what our home value is, Shannon? Yeah. So essentially, the colleges will generally take your word for it. So Angela, if you think Zillow is overshooting, that's fine. You put what you think you could sell it for today. Um, I often recommend checking out a Zillow. If people just have no idea, go to Zillow uh, or some of these other sites and they'll give you what they think it is. But of course, those are all based on, you know, an algorithm. They, it's not a perfect science. You may know better than Zillow and you are really just asked to report what you think the fair market value is at this point based on nothing more than what's in your head, what you think. Um, What I would say is, again, the colleges will normally take your word for it unless something looks very, very odd to them. One (laughs) dollar. Exactly. (laughs) They would be questioning Ian's application with his one dollar home value. (laughs) And Zillow actually, I've got a friend who who works for Zillow and I noticed I was searching for my my home address and it was not on the website. Like the info had been deleted and I was like, what's going on here? And he's like, yeah, I think that was just like a weird bug. So like my home doesn't have any value according to Zillow or it oh, just doesn't exist. So maybe that, that's- That would be Ian's argument for reporting zero value. <laughs> I can find a way to argue anything, Shane. Um, but to be more helpful, uh, I did see that recently I got my tax bill, my property tax bill here in Oregon, and it's got my assessed value for taxes, both for the land and then the structure as well. Um, is that potentially something I could use to uh, for the, the value of the home based on that's what the government says it's, it's worth uh, to assess taxes? Yeah, I think that 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 is reasonable. Um, I would say usually Zillow, well, I I guess I shouldn't make any any, um, generalizations about that. But as long as you can defend your position 
if you were ever questioned, which normally you wouldn't be, then you're fine reporting whatever you think it is, whether that's what Zillow says, whether your tax assessment is. Um, The only thing I would say is if a a financial aid office happens to find your answer suspicious, Ian's zero (laughs) dollar home value, or what sometimes happens is they also ask you to report the the year you bought your home and the purchase price. So if you Uh, say you bought your home 10 years ago for 300,000 and you're reporting the current value of as 300,000, that might strike them as a little odd. Normally, you know, home values increase a little bit from year to year. You haven't seen what I've done to the place though. It is just a mess. (laughs) I hope they don't watch the podcast. They can actually see I've got walls and stuff. So that wouldn't be (laughs) You actually have some walls there. Um, if there is a particular reason, I've definitely had this conversation with somebody that, you know, Zillow might think it's worth a certain amount, but they don't know I've got a gaping hole in my roof right now. You know, right. I've got to reduce the price. I would have to reduce the price of my home by $30,000, you know, because somebody would clearly have to fix that. If I've got, you know, a closed up dilapidated business right next door, Zillow kind of might not know that, or I've got you know, angry, barking, biting dogs on the other side. (laughs) I have things that may reduce my particular home value that Zillow kind of doesn't know about. If there's something specific like that you can point to, you can actually put that on the profile. There is a, uh, you know, additional information section. So if you're worried about a financial aid officer checking Zillow, which they might, if they were particularly suspicious uh, about the value you reported and that you have a real explanation for it, put it there. Um, if not, if you just think, eh, I think they're kind of highballing it and I don't think it's worth that much with, without any specific reason, I would probably not put anything in that additional information box. Um, they will probably never question it. They'll probably accept your, the value that you report. If you don't like the looks of the financial aid offer, you can always go back and appeal and explain anything later on down the line. But unless there's a specific reason, I would just probably let it go. Just report what you think it's worth based on whatever that is, whether it's Zillow, the tax assessment, what your neighbor next door sold for. It's really up to you how you value your home. Be honest. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yes. Yeah. Don't be like Ian. Don't be like me. Get away with stuff. Uh, and the next question for you, Ian, comes in from Sam. And Sam asks, I have a child that is very strong academically. 1600 SAT, straight A's, very strong curriculum, lots of APs, very strong extracurriculars, and I presume recommendations. Yeah. They are applying to several elite institutions. And I know that even with their strong academics, there's a good chance they will not be admitted given how competitive these schools are. Right. We, we are trying to decide on how many safer schools they need to apply to. My question is this. They are also applying to several slightly less competitive institutions, but still very strong academically. From looking at Naviance in their average scores and tests, it seems that they would be highly likely to get into these schools. Is there a risk that a school might not admit them because they do not feel that they would actually attend? Uh, Should we have them apply to several of these safety schools? Um, We don't want our student to waste time writing unnecessary essays when they could be spending their time on their academics. How can we find the right balance? So this is interesting, like is one safety school enough or is 
are safety schools maybe not that safe and you need to have a few options out there? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the problem, uh, the, the problem, which is also just a wonderful opportunity for students who are this strong, yeah. is that your schools that you might consider to be safer for you are still pretty selective, right? Yeah. If you've got the kind of profile that Sam's describing for his child, you've got a really good chance of getting into some schools that might admit 35, 40% of their applicants that are still really, really selective institutions. And so those institutions are making hard choices all the time about who they're admitting to their classes. And if they feel like they have a student who's not particularly interested in attending, they might have a question about yield, right? Yield is an important uh, metric when it comes to assessing uh, an institution's health uh, in the admission process. And that's the percentage of students who are admitted, who ultimately decide to attend. If I admit a lot of 1600 kids who end up going elsewhere, that's really going to hurt my yield. And so I might, as an admission officer, look a little more carefully at the supplemental essay. I might investigate whether the student had a visit. I might, um, you know, see whether they interviewed. If they've done some of those things, and that demonstrates their interest and it makes them a little bit more likely to attend. Uh, we used to call them at Reed airdrop candidate, airdrop applicants. If a student never had any contact with us whatsoever and just submitted an application, it's like they flew over, dropped an app, and they kept ongoing. And the feeling was these students might not be all that interested in the school. Now, you don't want to let that yield overly affect what your admission decision is going to be, because it could be that the student just wasn't able to visit and really loves the place and is waiting until the spring. Um, but I think there are some cases for those schools that are more selective where we might say, this kid loves us. His parents went here. He's got a brother here. His scores are lower. He's maybe got a few B's but he's still strong in our profile. Whereas this other student has straight A's and is, is an airdrop, right? So I think you have to make contact with schools and show that you're interested. And you can do that, not just through visits, but also through the quality of your essay work. Now, I think one of the key elements of this question, Shannon, is, um, uh, is there a risk the student might not admit them because they do not feel they would want to attend? I think the wanting to attend is such an important piece of this from the student's perspective. So you don't want to just ramp up the number of schools you're applying to that will admit you if you're not actually interested in going. Because if you've got five additional offers from schools, but you don't actually want to go to those schools, well, then what, what is that really worth to you if you're not going to be excited about that opportunity? Uh, we always have students, uh, we recommend really strongly that they've got two schools that are no problem, where we've got a really strong sense of confidence that they're going to get in. Because if something goes really haywire, they might not get into one, but they probably will not be denied at both institutions, right? right? So having that fail safe, I think is helpful, but it's also really critical from my perspective that you want to go to both of those no problem schools. And when you're a student that has the academic record that Sam's kid has, there are a lot of great schools that are safety schools for you. And that's a good thing, right? Um, you know, so there might be that the best fit for this kid is actually one of the schools that are pretty easy for him to get into and not necessarily one of the ones that's really highly selective. So I'm on this sort of like train of trying to push back against the idea that the more selective a school is, the better it is, especially for any given student. Sam, your kid might be able to find a great option out there that is pretty, pretty solidly likely to, to offer them admission. So bottom line, Two schools that you would be really confident you can get into only apply to schools that you're interested in attending and make sure that your application reflects a level of knowledge and interest in that school. That is so smart, Ian, because I was just thinking, I was looking at it. This is my financial mathematical brain. Like, oh, they just have to hedge their bets, apply to two, three, four safeties. But it's more about the quality of the application yeah. and demonstrating that interest. That is the key more than 
quality over quantity. Yeah, I have seen some some flimsy supplemental apps for perceived safety schools that are just kind of like, this is almost offensive to the school that you haven't taken the time to get to know them. And, and a school might say, I don't care about your 1600. If you're not going to at least do a little bit of research about us, we can put you on the wait list. Um, I wanted to clip that little audio. He said, that is so smart, Ian. Maybe we'll be able to get that later. Make that a ringtone or something like that. <laughs> it doesn't do happen often, but when it does. Repeated, I know. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, oh, this is a good one. Uh, with the time we've got, my daughter is applying to 12 colleges, but we started the FAFSA and it looks like you can only submit the FAFSA to 10 schools. How do we decide which schools to send the FAFSA form to? Yes. So you can only submit the FAFSA to 10 schools at a time. So that is the key. You can get the FAFSA to all 12 schools. You don't have to forego financial aid at the other two schools. Um, but if you are applying to more than 10 schools, uh, which I know, Ian, you do not recommend anyway. Nope. So <laughs> keep it under the 10. That's the easy answer. Yep. You do want to apply to the 12. Please no more than that. Um, what you will have to do is it kind of creates a two-step process. What I would recommend doing, looking up the financial aid application deadlines of each of the 12 schools. Taking the 10 earliest deadlines. Okay listing those schools on the FAFSA to start. So go ahead, submit your FAFSA. Uh, within a few days, the student, and it does go to the student, not the parent. So it's something that the student needs to look out for. An email, um, they'll get an email confirming their FAFSA has been processed. Um, here is a link to your student aid report, which is a summary of everything you put on the FAFSA. You should check it over. But once you get that email, that is your signal that those 10 schools have received your FAFSA. They are all set. You can now log back into the FAFSA, remove, if you wanted to remove all 10, or you could remove just two, add the two schools that have not received the FAFSA yet, resubmit, and then in a few days, you will get a subsequent email saying your new FAFSA transmission has been processed. Now all 12 schools have your FAFSA and you are all set. So it's a kind of a little bit of a pain in the neck. It creates a two-step process. There's a lot of things about applying to more than 10 schools that are a, a pain in the neck that I'm sure Just you don't have time thing. to get into. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's, that's great. And those schools, those, those initial 10, they're not going to get it a second time or the, the eight that you leave on there are not going to get it a second time. They will get it a second time, but it absolutely does not matter. They'll, okay. they'll in their computer system, they'll have a couple of transmissions, but that's fine. That's okay. not unusual. Gotcha. I think we got time for one more question. We're just taking time away from Jen and she doesn't mind that. Uh, what I, this... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't speak so soon. <laughs> you may have a problem with Jen. <laughs> yeah, don't tell her I said that. I don't know if she listens to the show. She just comes as a guest. Let's do this one from Joan. Joan, my yeah. student is having a hard time coming up with a grabby opening for his personal statement. Mm. How should he think about the first paragraph for this essay to make it interesting and engaging? It's a great, great question, Joan. Um, we see uh, first paragraphs with these really kind of grabby, risky openings, onomatopoeias, whack, bang, I heard the sounds from behind me, you know, these things that are intended to draw the reader in. Uh, and I was having a conversation with a student uh, maybe a week, two weeks ago, and I, we were talking about this very concept. And I said to him, why do you think you need a grabby opening for your first intro paragraph? And he's like, well, I want to get the attention of the reader so that they'll keep reading. And I said, it is the admission officer's job to read every single word that you write. Yeah. 
and it's a 650 word essay. We're not talking about a 650 page novel where you have to reel me in with that first chapter or else I'm going to put it down. We're talking about something that takes me 45 seconds to a minute and a half to read in total from start to finish. So your first paragraph doesn't have to have that sort of attention grabbing. I got to bring you in with this imagery and beautiful prose. I find Shannon that one of the most common recommendations I make to students when I see their first draft of an essay is to delete their entire first paragraph because students so often are wasting time of getting to the main idea. And so they'll have this really creative like opening uh, in their, in their first paragraph, but it's just like, I don't know who the student is. I don't know where we are. I don't know what's happening. And then their first line of their second paragraph is almost always clear and simple and it tells me exactly what's going on. And I think students are really shocked when I say, this should be the first sentence of your essay. This is where I want you to start. Um, and, and rejecting that first paragraph, I think, can be really, really hard for them. I was talking yesterday to one of my best students this year. She's really sharp, really smart, just a talented, talented kid, great writer. And we were talking about her personal essay. And I said, well, how do you feel about it? And she's like, I don't know. I like it, but it's not what I thought it was supposed to be. And I was like, well, why not? She's like, well, it doesn't have that like super, you know, interesting opening. And I said, why do you think that's what it's supposed to be? It's like, you've got a clear message. You're attacking it really well. Your personality comes through. This is a great essay. And so I think there's this convention around the college essay that it has to have this like very exciting sort of framing. And it doesn't. Um, be yourself, be clear, be simple, tell your story. And uh, hopefully that'll help as you're writing those essays. And um, can I just give a shout out? I know we're taking Jen's entire segment now, <laughs> but you and our colleague, Christine, did a segment just a couple weeks ago, I think it was, yeah. um, about why, why we hate the Costco essay. <laughs> but yeah. I will tell you, for our listeners, if you have not heard that segment, go back and listen to it. It was the most kind of clear breakdown of how to effectively write a college essay that I've heard. I'm being so complimentary of you today. Ian. It's mostly Christine know. in that case, not me, not it me. Was Christine, Christine was great. Yeah. Don't get used to these compliments either, but yeah. go back and listen to that segment. And Christine's message was that the admissions officer is going to take basically a one sentence takeaway from that, your essay. So everything you write in that essay should be in service of what is the takeaway that you want the admissions officer to know. Exactly. And flashy openings. Gets in the way. It gets in the way of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, Jen's going to kill us because we are taking all of her time. But Shannon, I want to thank you for coming on for the Q&A. It's just too fun. Um, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Villanova supplemental essays. So don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. 
College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to today's show. It's the moment that everyone has been waiting for. We've got Jennifer Simons here. Hey, Jen, how are you? Hey, I think that's that's a lot of buildup for me, but okay. Yeah, well, I mean, you got a lot of mention in the first two segments where you're we talking about you coming on the show and, and your, you know, just, just your presence, your gravitas. Uh, and so we're really looking forward to this final segment. For those of you who are interested in Villanova University, we got a real treat for you. We're going to unpack the supplemental essay prompts for Villanova today. I think if you're not interested in Villanova, there's still something to learn from any time you're going to be engaging with how to approach supplemental essay prompts, because lots of schools approach them in similar kinds of ways, both in the way that they're asking the questions and also the best methods, broadly speaking, for how to respond to them. So don't turn this off if you're not interested in Villanova. Uh, Maybe Jen will get you interested in Villanova by the end of the conversation, though that is not the stated goal of this particular segment. Um, and and we we'll got we got some stuff for you to learn. Um, Jen, the Augustinians, right? You said, I want to talk about the Augustinians. And I noticed here we've got we've got first of all one prompt, 300 words maximum, five options. You get to choose one from among those five options, but three of them mention St. Augustine. Why is that? Oh, what a good question. So Villanova is the only Augustinian university in the United States, maybe the world, but I know it's the only one in the United States and they are very proud of their heritage. When you said before that maybe I could convince some students to apply to Villanova, I will I will try to do that and keep in mind that I am a I am a, a Jewish young yeah, I'm not so young. I'm Jewish. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm of uh, I, my religion is Jewish. I don't know how else to say it. And I am really attracted to the community at Villanova, just tremendously attracted to it. And I will say that even though we're going to talk a lot about the Augustinians and what they believe and, and uh, the way the questions are written, that you can be a student at Villanova um, from any ethnic or religious background. Um, so I just want to make that clear that although they are steeped in the tradition of, uh, you know, that that's presented forth, it is a tradition of love. That is the first tenant, love. And how could you not not want to be part of a tradition that's based in love. Um, other other uh, notable, um, not assets, but other notable qualities of the Augustinian tradition, I wrote them down, are things like friendship, um, the common good, community, devotion to study. So all things that really um, 
I think, make for an excellent college experience. So that's why we're talking about the Augustinians. I talked to my friend Andy in the admissions office because I didn't just want this to be Jen gushing about Villanova. And the reason I, the reason I, so far you're failing at that, but yeah, I know I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I really, I, I, the, the thing about Villanova is that their admissions office, if you've ever had the pleasure of meeting any of the admissions officers, I've traveled with quite a few of them. They live and breathe those values of humility, Mm. of compassion, of love. They are the best people. They really are. And so that's all I'll say about that. I'll tell you what Andy said about the prompts because he was one of the people that wrote them. And so he was really invested in me telling students that the prompts are about going beyond oneself. And so his suggestion, again, as an admissions Mm. officer is to take a deep breath and relax. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Don't be afraid to draw out your personality or your creativity. He said, we want you to write about something that sets your heart on fire. And then I said, well, how is how are they going to do that, Andy, in 250 words? That doesn't seem like a lot of a lot of room to write about something that sets your heart on fire. And he said, well, I want to emphasize the word about um, about 250 words thoughtfully considering the prompts don't feel like you have to go on and on. And so I think the first bit of advice I'll give you via Andy about the Villanova prompts is that you want to be thoughtful, but you also want to be concise. And he, Andy appreciated the fact that I said, you are not St. Augustine. You are not writing your own confessions. You are allowing the admissions officers to genuinely get to know you. But um, I think the prompts come from a place of love and they are written in such a way that makes me want to tell them about myself. So I think you might've had a question there. I've just been talking for a long time. So I'll pause Ian. Now, what would you like to say? Wait, who's hosted this show? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You should. No, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff there. I think Jen, we can unpack some things. You just gotta, just gotta pause occasionally. Uh, yeah. So we can, we can jump right in. I, I love it. So first of all, Augustine's confessions was one of my favorite pieces that I read in my freshman year of college. It's really, really good. And so whether you're going to apply to Villanova or not uh, read the confessions, they're really, really great for self-reflection. And I think it sounds like that's a lot of what's coming through in these prompts, both in terms of your assessment and also what Andy has to say. I wanted to go back to that just initial idea about applying to religiously affiliated institutions, because you can get lots of different levels of religious affiliation. And I think a place like Villanova is, as you said, welcoming to all different belief systems, all different ethnicities. It's a place that's very, very open in terms of their engagement. And I think if you looked at them and say, well, there's a religious affiliation, I don't know if that's going to be right for me. When you look at the actual questions behind each of these prompts, there's nothing in there that says, talk about faith in your life. They're really open-ended questions that everyone can have an answer to um, that point to more values rather than belief systems. And I think that's a really clear and important distinction for a student who might say, well, I'm not super religious. I don't know if I can do Villanova. It's more about the values being in alignment with your your values than having a, a system of faith that's overlapping with theirs. 100%. Um, the other thing I would just wanted to add is that there is a second essay that asks why Villanova. And what I love about that is that it frees students 
not to try and shove that kind of content into the first essay, right? So you can write the first essay without having to talk about why you want to be a student at Villanova, because you know that you have this second prompt that you can write about why you want Villanova to be your home, your new community. So I think it's important for students to acknowledge that we're not going to unpack that prompt because we want to talk about these other, these other five. Now, the question I have for you, Jen, three of these mention St. Augustine as an initial preamble, one sentence, and then they all come up with a basic question. And I wonder what is the importance in these prompts of even mentioning St. Augustine, option A, option C, option E, all have specific references to St. Augustine. Why do, why do colleges do that if it's not explicitly a part of the question? And I'll just give you one example just for the listeners who don't know. Um, <clears throat> one of the themes in St. Augustine's book, Confessions, is the idea of redemption. Tell us your story of being given a second chance. Why is the St. Augustine preamble in there? Well, all the... the- they mention St. Augustine because they want you to understand their culture, but that might be my favorite question because I think it's a better version of the what I call the failure yeah. common app yeah. question. I mean, how much does that say about Villanova that they're not talking? I mean, essentially, it's the same thing. You failed. You need redemption, but they're they're bypassing the failure and going straight to the redemption because those are their values. You don't have to write one wit about St. Augustine. All these questions talk about you. You are a factor in all those questions. So don't rehash the question ever. Don't, you know, feel like you have to mention St. Augustine ever, but tell us, focus on the you in that question. And the, like, the, what is the truest thing that you know? One of the questions that doesn't mention St. Augustine, um, at least directly is a question that I think every student should answer whether they want to apply or go to Villanova at all. What is the true? I want to answer that question. It's a beautiful gonna, question. It it's a, a, that's a great writing prompt for sure. Um, and I think because truth has, there's so many different ways of thinking, like truth is a very clear idea, but for a thing to be true that, you know, man, that can just like take on so many different possibilities. I mean, you could just, a student who's interested in STEM could talk about math being the truest thing they know. A student could talk about the love that they have for their parents. Um, There's like just so many different possibilities with that. I love the openness of it, but also the way that it has this specificity for any given respondent. And I would just love to be in the Villanova admission office reading the different answers to these questions because it seems like they they would elicit a really wide variety of responses. Absolutely. I also want to call attention to the, I think it's the fifth option about miracles. Miracles are not contrary to nature, but only contrary to what we know about nature. Now, when I first read that half of that question, I thought that this is going to be a faith-based answer. This is going to be a question about the natural world. And in fact, it's not, right? It's not. It's about the wonder of technology. So here, I think that they're giving folks um, an opportunity to maybe all the techies out there, maybe the people that didn't respond to the other questions um, in a direct way want to talk about their engagement with everything from social media and technology to things they've created. So I, what I also really love about these questions as a whole is that there's an opportunity for everyone yeah. um, to answer them. I think that's right. And I think you can you can get into a, a little bit of a misstep as a student if you treat this as the miracles question. Yeah, I mean, it is like in terms of labeling it, but this is not about writing about miracles. 
right? It's a really wonderful kind of juxtaposition of this idea of something that's inexplicable and then technology being an explained solution to something where maybe we don't know what the solution is, but once we have it, we can explain what that is. And it just feels like that's, that's a, just a very interesting kind of juxtaposition that's happening there. Um, I, what do you think about, so just for, again, for framing, um, there are five different questions here. Each one of the prompts ends with a question that I think you could answer without even considering the first sentence. To what extent do you think it's important for students to bring in any aspect of that framing sentence when they answer the question? For example, option A, St. Augustine states that well-being is not concerned with myself alone, but with my neighbor's good as well. Then the question, how have you advocated for equity and justice in your communities? Do you think it's important to talk about St. Augustine's quote or just to answer the question about advocating for equity and justice? I believe, and I'm curious to see if you agree with me on this, that it is not necessary to talk about St. Augustine's quote. I hope that you internalize that. I hope that you take something away from that. But at the end of the day, I want you to write about you and I want you to write about social justice. That's what's important here. The same way technology is important than the other one. Um, the same way I could pull up the, you know, we're not talking about um, confessions. We're talking about the idea of redemption and how you have been given a second chance. So if it were up to me, I would not have you mention, first of all, you're three, you have 300 words. Don't, don't right. write, don't rehash the question. Don't need to write about St. Augustine at all. Do you agree? I agree. I agree uh, wholeheartedly. I think often there are these framing questions that colleges give. And for my money, they are a recruiting tool. Yes. They're a way of saying, we want you to know this about us before you answer this question. And I think all the things that you said about Augustinians, like if I were applying to Villanova and was unfamiliar with this, I might go look up St. Augustine. I might say, why do they keep asking about this? That's what they want you to do because you get excited. You say, oh, love and community. This, I'm more excited about this place now than I was before. That's the goal. But then the question itself, you don't have to talk about miracles. You don't have to use the word miracles if you're writing about a technological solution to a problem. Right. And I, I think a lot of students get tripped up in trying to bring that framing sentence into their response and it takes them away from their voice. It takes them away from their self in a way that is not productive. Um, I'll also add, I think this is true of the common app prompts as well, that the admissions officers already know from reading so many essays, the question that you're answering without yeah. you restating the question. Yeah. So, you know, that's another reason you don't have to uh, restate the question in your answer. That's one of the things I tell students is you don't need to remind me I'm reading a college essay by putting the prompt at the beginning of your response. I know I'm reading a college essay. This is my 30th today. <laughs> like, <you> know, it's. <laughs> I got it. Um, any other final tips that you want to give? Or should we just have a couple of minutes? But this has been really kind of refreshing. And, and uh, I don't have a lot of students that apply to Villanova. So it's really cool to get to engage with questions like these. Um, I wish more schools had questions that were really geared in this direction to teach about the institution as well as give a, a platform for, for students to respond. Well, I, I think what, what's so amazing about Villanova is that a lot of people know them. I know you're a basketball fan, right? A lot of people know them more recently through sports. And, um, you know, I've seen the way a lot of uh, colleges and universities or at least the way the admissions officers engage with their winning, you know, athletic teams. I've also seen 
the flip side. But um, what I find so fascinating about Villanova is that the attitude of everyone on the staff is, of course, you know, they want to win and, you know, who doesn't want to win? But, you know, they didn't want that those winnings in basketball or wherever, you know, to detract from who they are. It was just kind of like a, a really nice thing and it got the campus excited, but it's just a part of who they are. So I, if you know about Villanova because of sports, that's great, but there's a depth to it, a richness to it. There's cultural and religious heritage um, that you can sort of use as you want. It's, it's a very, it's a very special place. I, I am definitely biased, but I think it's a, it's a great place for everyone to check out. Today's uh, episode of Getting In brought to you by <laughs> Villanova University. I'm Villanova sorry. University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay, uh, <laughs> that was great. Sorry. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, we're all all done with that segment, but it was really, it was great talking to you about Villanova. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. It's always great to see you, Ian. Wonderful. Uh, next week, I'll be back again, hosting again. We're going to talk about the supplemental essays for USC all the way on the other side of the country. They have some really unusual essays as well. We'll also talk about what you should do if you're just getting started now. And it's not too late to apply to college. You might have missed some of the early action deadlines, but there are still opportunities available for you. And some tips for high school seniors who are getting started now on the finance side as well. How do you pay for college if you haven't done anything just yet? Uh, so we look forward to having that conversation with you. Congratulations that November 1st is behind you. And we hope you have a wonderful weekend as always. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.